I'm Terry Teachout, drama critic of The Wall Street Journal. I'm Elizabeth Vincentelli, and I write for The New York Times, The New Yorker, and Newsday. And I'm Peter Marks, theater critic of The Washington Post. Welcome to episode 48 of Three on the Isle, a podcast from New York about theater in America. We're hosted by American Theater Magazine, a publication of the Theater Communications Group. New York is crawling, if that's the word, with big-name playwrights these days. And we have one of the biggest in the studio today, Connor McPherson, the author most recently of the book for Girl from the North Country, the Bob Dylan, I guess you have to call it a jukebox musical, though that's not really what it is, which was performed downtown at the Public Theater in 2018 and has now transferred to Broadway in a production directed by the playwright himself. I've seen it, uh, I think, three times already, once in London and twice in New York. I'm, I'm really eager to see it again on Broadway. Me too. Uh, I think it's slightly new cast, but not... Uh, there's some new... new J.O. Sanders and places. Newcomers, and there's also a new number at the end. Oh, is there? Yes. Oh, great. Okay, something. Well, Thanks. we have, as you can tell, we have lots to talk about with Connor. Um, and then at the end of our uh, episode, as usual, the three of us will offer up our own choices and thoughts about productions we've seen of late. Okay, but first, uh, Peter is going to tell us about his arena experience, uh, which is not something we can <laughs> boast about many times on the theater circuit. No, indeed. Um, and uh, it's something that, Peter, you described in the Washington Post last week as one of the most profound theater experiences of my career. Mm. So, yeah. you saw Aaron Sorkin's uh, stage version of To Kill a Mockingbird at Madison Square Garden which I realize as a, as a next season. <laughs> right. No, no, you're not. You're not. Uh, no, um, but no, anyway. I was as a kid. My parents, you were, really? My father was a next season. So you were back at the garden, but yeah. this time for To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah. It was you and 18,000 um, uh, mostly kids. kids. Yeah. Uh, so, okay, so tell us about that. That sounds insane. Yeah, I read, I read your story in The Post, and I, of course my own feelings about the Sorganized Mockingbird, <laughs> kind of mixed. But that particular performance, it sounds to me like it just must have been extraordinary. Well, yeah, it was. It was It was quite wonderful. And I. it was more wonderful than I imagined it was going to be because you don't think about a play in an arena with 18,000 seats around it uh, is going to be particularly amenable or accessible for everybody in, a, in the in the in the place, but let me and also I was worried a little bit about the idea of eighteen thousand school kids who would think of this as a class day off and might not be as engaged by this. To as, put it mildly, right? Yeah, it had it had the potential for you know a little bit of you know control issues, but it was extraordinary. Uh, the level of attention that these kids devoted to the play, many of them had read the. Uh, the novel as part of their school assignments. Uh, they were from all over the city. They were black, brown, white, kids in caps and hijabs and school sweats and arriving in delegations. You saw them sort of come and take their seats in groups, you know, with the only, the, I wish they had flags or something, you know, <laughs> arriving. There was this kind of wonderful, almost Olympic event quality to it. Wow. And the, the moment I realized this was going to work um, with the stage, Created by director Bartlett Sher with the entire cast performing the entire play, racial epithets and all. And if you know To Kill a Mockingbird, there are some strong words used. 
Um, so they did it uncut then. They did it completely uncut, and the, and on this stage that was spread out, it, it was as if they had unroll unraveled the uh, Schubert Theater stage to, to accommodate both the porch of the uh, Finches and the courtroom where Tom Robinson is tried, all uh, uh, sort of on a horizontal. And when and it's set up in the round. And it was set up with yeah, the entire arena was filled all the way around with four, um, you know, those sort of jumbotron. Um, screens up to, to aid people who maybe couldn't see the in close up when you're way up at the top of the you know in the gods so to speak but when um ed harris entered as atticus finch the roar was so it was a sound i have really? never wow. heard in a theater well when you think about eighteen thousand people it, as one welcoming a character they knew oh. <laughs> In one, it was like thunderous in a way that really uh, defied any uh, experience I'd ever had before. Um, I realized at that moment this was going to be an extraordinary afternoon. And something about the level of attention that the, that these students uh, paid to what was going on at every moment when, for example, the uh, the narrators are the three kids, Jem, Scout, and Dill, and they they immediately identified with them and laughed sort of, you know, in the, in a kind of conspiratorial way with them. Uh-huh. And um, when the um, when the really vicious characters, when Bob Ewell and Mayella said the most horrific things, there was this like collective sort of grumble, rumbling through the crowd. And then you'd hear someone sort of speak back at them, like Calpurnia played by Lisa Gay Hamilton, and there would be this kind of swell of support for her. You could feel it. You know, when 18,000 people do something, yeah. it doesn't have to be, you know, just like, like standing ovations at the end of the show. You felt each moment. And of course, when Tom Robinson gave his sort of like dignified, and I know what you mean, uh, Terry, there are moments that are sort of like, you know, they they are meant, they are clearly meant to trigger feelings in the crowd, but when it's eighteen thousand kids, well, yeah, that's different. Yeah, and they school don't kids, right? And they don't they they're they're honest, you know. They you could so easily lose them, uh, but they it built it built like a like a wave, you know, from the beginning of the play till the end, and by the end of the play, they were so into it, it was it was a magnificent experience. It made me feel. Like theater had real power and they believed in what they were, they believed and they listened and they accepted these characters as having a story that they needed to hear. You know, I think almost in spite of themselves, maybe, you know, maybe if they came in, some of them came in not expecting to love it quite as, and we should say this was done free of charge. Um, At the end of the show, 18,000 boxes of Popcorn were distributed to the students. <laughs> At the end of the At show. At the end, oh, thank God, yes. Very, and very water wise. bottles. Yeah, very wise. Um, Madison Square Garden provided all the in-kind service. They were all the services were free, devo- you know. Um, so this was really a gift to the city of New York and to uh, – and, and it affected me in ways I didn't expect it to. I really thought, you know, I was going to be worried about behavior or something that I was going to distract been. me. I would have been. Yeah. Um, the other and the little incidentals were uh, they were they had brought in two groups of kids as choir as choir so there's a hymn that's sung at the end of the play and they joined in they had been rehearsed I mean there were you know these some I don't know if they were high school choirs or all city choirs but they were they were like they were seated closest to the stage and when the hymn there's a hymn at the end of the the play 
something, some joy comes in the morning or something. I can't remember what the name of the song is, but they, they rose up and sang it with them. And it was, you know, again. Oh my God. Oh, it, yeah. It was, I'm so jealous. I know. Oh. I didn't expect, I, I really, I, I just felt so, you know, it made you feel so good. About theater. About theater and about young people. Yes. Spike Lee spoke before the, the um, he came, you know, he a New York City kid and he admonished them. But he had he said the best thing. He said, please listen to the words. And coming from him, I think that had a lot of power for them mm-hmm. to understand that, you know, he respected this piece of art. Um, and that that went a long way. Um, I bet. For so at so, least. Two thirds of them. It was the first play they'd ever seen. I wonder. Yeah, maybe this is you know pie in the sky. But I, I, I mused in print, and I wonder what you guys think. You know, this kind of event should. Why can't it be replicated? Are there not enough plays that would do the same thing? And I think it's different with a play than a musical. You know, yes. listening to the words for three hours. You know, it has to be potent. You know, music. You can. We all can sort of, you know, relax into this one. You have to stay on your good. But are there? Could we well, do this? Well, of course, there's a good chance that a significant number of them had read the book. Yes, that it really so it's a, it right. really hits a sweet spot of awareness on the part of totally. the audience. And, I mean, you wouldn't uh, want to have them see present laughter, you know, <laughs> yeah, something like that. Don't make me spit up my coffee. Yeah, that's but, pretty but, funny. I no, mean, coward, but, ladies and gentlemen. Although the, the first play I ever saw on stage was Blythe Spirit when I was in junior high school. Right. But, Here I am. But nevertheless, Possibly I mean, you're a theater critic arena. for the Wall Street Journal. It seems like a perfect intersection of, of play and audience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And setting. It just setting. sounds... Fantastic. Yeah, I guess it's you know right. Um, it, it, but the, you know the 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 corollary, or is you know what, what the, the you know he the, the interesting thing is that Mockingbird can't attract this audience on Broadway. Yeah. It, young people, um, I think also there is a resistance because the N word is said so often oh, that I think they can't afford to go. And but audiences of color are not you know flooding uh, into the Schubert Theater. Um, I and I at, think I was that, at a play. Uh, last night with an all-black cast, and that was its theme. And that was a substantially white audience. Interesting. Yeah, it's just... There were were enough people of color in the audience that you felt that feedback, Mm -hmm. that you feel... Right. It's very exciting. But I I just sat there and thought, yes, I love this. I adore this show. But where's everybody else? Right, 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 right. Well, that's more and more... Part of what we do is being aware of that yeah. much more than we were 20 years ago, I think. Maybe not. Maybe that's an overstatement. But I think that you don't think so, Elizabeth? You know what no, I mean? No, I, I, I agree. I'm just not sure how to address it mm-hmm. practically well, because I, that, that word outreach is, there's something a little condescending yes, about I it know that what really you mean. bugs right. me. Right. I, have, but, I have experience with this, obviously, because I've, I've right, done Satchmo. that kind of play and I've done it. At one theater, for which outreach is not something that you paste on every uh, February, the Court Theater in Chicago, which systematically, you know, it's at the University of Chicago, which is in a community that has, on the one hand, uh, people with a whole lot of money, Mm. and on the other hand, a a black community, which is quite wide-ranging in 
its own economic situation. Mm. I mean, it's a place where the where the Obamas grew up and lived. It's also a place where there are a lot of really poor people mm -hmm. and people who know nothing about theater right. and don't go to it, wouldn't dream of it. And the court has decided for years that they're not just going to do a little bit of outreach, that they are going to try to make it a systematic part of the way they function in the community. Hmm. And they have succeeded to a degree, a greater degree than any other American theater. Wow. That I know oh, I, I, that I want to know more about. But it's because they don't just do a little bit of it. They do it. They think of it all the time. It's knitted into their mission. Well, that's the thing. It their... has to be part of the, right. the organization's DNA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. To, it has to be like a matter-of-fact thing right. that you... I, I'd rather think of it as reaching out rather than outreach. Yeah, yeah, I, know I don't what you know. Mean. It feels like very like a very slight semantic distinction, but reaching out to me, it's like reaching out to every possible yeah. audience out there. Why, you know, just anyway. Well, it's just you got to think about it all the time. But I cannot help but think that these kids will never forget that experience. Mm. Oh God, yeah, you won't. I never will. I will. I. I. It's exactly right. I and I didn't go in thinking I would have that yeah. kind of experience. I wish so, I'd been there too. Yeah. Thanks for telling us. Yeah, about it. no, pleasure. Pleasure. Okay, and now a few words about today's guest. Uh and although if you're listening to this podcast, I'm there's a very strong chance that you've heard of our next guest, even if you haven't seen one of his plays. Um Conor McPherson was born in Dublin in 1971, and he's now one of the foremost uh, playwrights in the English-speaking world. And um, his work is staged regularly in New York, both on Broadway and off, is usually at the Irish Rep, but also at the Atlantic. Uh, and of course, he's produced all across America. Yeah, uh, I've seen him. I've seen his work yeah, in Washington yes. several times. Um, maybe the plays you know best uh, uh, are his sort of ghost-like uh, plays, ghostly stories, the spectral, the weir, which is a series of ghost stories, or the seafarer, which is mm -hmm. a darker almost, it's got like a satanic cast to it, and then, or Shining City, for example. Uh, and uh, the seafarer even sort of shows up at Christmas in a lot of, uh, in a lot of things. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A few years ago, Mrs. T and I, we, we flew into Chicago to see uh, Steppenwolf's production of The Seafarer. And we flew into a blizzard. I mean a Chicago blizzard. And we had to drive straight from the airport to Steppenwolf to get to the show. It was, John Mahoney was in it. And uh, it, was, it was a scary ride. We got there just in time for the starting of the show, but it was absolutely worth the trip. So thank you very much for taking the time to chat with us, Connor McPherson. We are honored by your presence. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you. Before getting around to your production of Girl from the North Country, I thought we might get started by talking about an aspect of your work that is often discussed and that figures prominently in The Seafarer, which is that you often write about occurrences that appear to be supernatural. What is it about this theme that engages you as a creative artist? I always think it just feels very realistic to me. You know, I think that life feels very mysterious and very strange and uh, confusing. And I sort of think that that's the context that we live in. And I think in the theatre especially, theatre to me has a kind of spooky religious feeling. You're sitting in the dark and people are pretending to be something else and... It's like it all takes place on a kind of altar in a funny way. So to me, that's all really spooky. And then if you lean into that in a play, I think it creates a lot of 
very strange energy. Were you raised as a churchgoer? Everybody in Ireland is usually brought up as a <laughs> as a, a Catholic. Um, uh, there are, you know, some who aren't, but uh, mostly when I was growing up, yeah, it was assumed you were a Catholic. So we were all brought up Catholics, all going to mass every week and all were that you stuff. Were a city boy? I was. I grew up in Dublin, in the suburbs, you know, and um, yeah, so I was. I wasn't, uh, no, I wasn't a countryside person. How do you want us to read something like the seafarer which which appears to have a satanic presence in it um i suppose you just i would see it that if you're looking at the characters i don't see them so much you know okay in one level you could say they're in a the environment of dublin but really they're in the environment of the cosmos and that's what you're looking at you're looking at people to, to start you know struggling with their own uh dramas which may or may not have any meaning whatsoever or they could have massive meaning they could have a cosmic meaning, you know, so it's that context. It's surrounded by darkness. They're surrounded by the universe. That's the way I see them. Connor, when you started writing in that vein, mm-hmm. in a piece like The Weir, mm-hmm. uh, did you, did, were you unsure as to whether people would join you in that, the world you created? Did you have any indication that audiences were going to be, would connect with the kinds of um, characters and environments in which your characters live, or was it um, um, that part of the mystery for you, whether you actually could translate that? Well, firstly, when you have any idea for a play, I mean, you just feel like you're lucky that you've got any energy or have an idea to write anything. You don't really think, oh, well, how will this play out? You know, is this the right thing that I should do? It's the only thing you can write, and that's what you'll do. So there's that. So you don't sort of think about the, the end result. But the question of whether I thought anyone would be interested in it was I suppose I always there is people do get in the mood for ghost stories mm. and often if someone starts to tell one people do really listen right um and so I thought well probably there might be some interest in, in that you know hopefully but it was only supposed to run for three and a half weeks um, the weir yeah so I but it you know like you know three years later it was still running Amazing. pretty much that production and Incredible. that was um, so I couldn't no I couldn't have predicted that no how big a house was the weir written for originally it was it played originally in a sixty seat mm. uh, little and it wasn't your shows really fly in small spaces sure sure and that one there wasn't it was just like higgledy piggledy like benches and chairs people were sort of sitting all, almost as though they were just in the bar and so that was a very uh, very effective way of doing it. Well, it's interesting what Peter asked, because it took me one play to get on your wavelength. I saw Shining City, and I thought, what is this? And I just <laughs> didn't connect with it at all. And then the next time, it was boom, and I was blown out of the theater. Do you, you mean the boom. next time seeing Shining City or no, another play? No, the next time seeing a play by Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm interested by what you just said about this idea of the, of the, the cosmos and this kind of mythical quality, because I, 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 I'm dying to talk about Girl from the North Country, and I think that is very present mm. in the show, this mythical mm. quality, even though it's, it's partly very realistic, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it feels very anchored in a reality, in a kind of, in a real, con- like, very solid context, but there's a mythical quality to it, it that's very hard to define. Is mm-hmm. that something that you were consciously going for or did it just organically rise from the from the songs? Um, I think, well, the music has a huge amount to do with it, but really when I was starting out with it, I knew that the story was essentially the story of the nativity, you know, and that was what I, you know, that was what it, 
where, where I was going with it, you know. So for me, everything I had not thought of that at yeah, all. Yeah. That feels so stupid. <laughs> yeah. So it's like every you know everything in it is sort of like um, mm. they're all like little. All the stories in it are like are, are like parables from the Bible, mm. really. For me, you know. Mm-hmm. So you've got like a man went to his uncle's funeral. He saw people living in tents. He decided he would sell his daughter. It's that kind of. Mm. You know, what's these stories in this thing, mm. you know, mm. it's the, so it's all those little and then you have. So it's kind of like, um, I mean, so it has a for me, it's almost more religious feeling than mythical in a mm. funny way. And then the song Bob's songs are so religious, actually, really, I think a lot of them and they're like hymns. And so you've got as a kind of uh, just like a sort of a religious service in a weird way. Well, you know, we should say, I mean, yeah. you know, that it, it's that the songs are Dylan's songs, many of them from later in his career, mm-hmm. not so much mm-hmm. even the most, some of the most famous songs. There mm-hmm. are a few mm-hmm. that people will immediately know with, were they the jumping off point for you to figure out the stories or did the stories help you figure out which songs you wanted to interpolate? Um, I didn't so much use the songs for characters. Um, Really, I just kind of thought, well, if I can get some kind of uh, structure going here with these characters living in this house and who's coming through and living here, I knew that we would find the right songs because Dylan has so many and they're so in a way ambiguous and universal mm-hmm. that anybody could start, could sing a lot of those songs and it would give a sense of their inner portraiture of the, their state of mind because he's a real writer. It's like, it's real poetic, um, deep, serious questioning stuff, you know? Um, now he, I think always claims he writes just a kind of stream of consciousness and he's not sure where the songs come from, but at the same time, he's so good at it. Um, that those those there's always an echo of something for the audience within those songs. So I knew that could kind of work. Whether or not it would be you know as effective as it has been, I had no idea. But I just had a suspicion it might work. But I think also setting it in the 1930s helps it. Yeah, yeah. Actually, can we backtrack a second sure. and kind of explain a little bit yes. how you, of all playwrights, ended up doing this show because I think a lot of our listeners may not associate you with, with the musical, mm-hmm. which in a very broad definition, this, this is, um, and can you tell us a little bit about how, because my understanding is that you were approached actually, right? Is that it? To yeah, I was or... approached, but I mean, um, I think they had been, I think they were probably going out to a few people. I mean, and the, the and by that they, we mean the Dylan, Dylan's record company, Dylan's record I think, company. and his management. Mm-hmm. And, um, I didn't. So they saw this as exploitation. Um, I think that's the term in the business. I think they were looking for a way to, what would they say? Yes, maximize the potential of the, <laughs> of the you know, the assets in, in, every, in every available market, you know. So I think it's like that, you know. And, um, but when it came to me, it was kind of like through my agent sort of saying, hey, you know, there's these people, they want to know, are you interested in doing a, you know, uh, would you have an idea of how to use Bob Dylan songs? And I was like, what? You know, and then... <laughs> But then I did have an idea, so I sent it to them, and uh, uh, very quickly they came back saying, yeah, Bob likes that idea, so, you know, do it. And I was like, what? What's what's happening? You know, it was very surreal. Wow. Did Um, you feel feel like you'd stepped onto an escalator? It was very, very strange. Yes, it was very strange. But he's, you know, not a predictable kind of... I mean, it's it's as... it's as likely that something right. nuts like that would happen with him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, and I always said, well, it's either either he totally trusts me or he doesn't care. And you can't know which. It's, it's kind of both, it sounds <laughs> it's like. Both. It's sort of both, you know. But uh, so I, off I went. 
It, well, it's so. Um, it's it, it, the nice thing about it is that, like him, it's there is something kind of uh, uh, inscrutable about the piece. It it doesn't fit into any category like mm-hmm. Bob Dylan. It it's its mm-hmm. own genre or jukebox musical, right? Which, which is just not a, a, a is, useful description. Yeah, I don't think yeah. of this show. But yeah, I mean. It, and in a way, I have no experience of musicals, so I didn't really ever hadn't done one. So for me, did you like them? Um, I didn't really know. I'd seen. I was say, I, have you seen? Mary? Not really. No, not really. And I didn't quite Can you name a musical you've seen. Um, <laughs> I saw. I think I saw next next to normal. You did. Okay, that's right. Yeah. Um, and I don't know. Maybe if, uh, some other ones. I don't know. Well, I, you're not a musical guy, and, and no. yet when that's, I, that's when I show you, that, so, there's nothing wrong with that. Oh, I no. am a musical guy, but there's nothing we listen. We I have nothing against them at all. But you obviously no, no, no. But I mean, you're talking about the nativity, and the, <laughs> yeah. what I thought of watching the show was Sondheim's Company. Right. Okay. I, I've never seen it. Critics are so like this. Yeah, yeah. We're always I, looking for the reference. This point. is why the show yeah, works, yeah. though, because because yeah. like the, you you did not try, as you said, you did not try to make the song fit a character or oh, tell the story. No, but listen, when it doesn't we, do when that we, at there all. is no eleven o'clock number in the God, girl in the North Well, when we did it, when we were doing it at the Old Vic Theater, this is a true story, and we had been doing it in rehearsals, and then we were in the theater. And I was just having great fun. I was playing my guitar during rehearsals and we were just having a great time. And then um, we were in putting it into the theatre during the technical rehearsals and the artistic director, Matthew Warches, came in. He said, how's it going? And I was like, yeah, good. You know, he said, uh, I said, how are you getting on? And he said, good. He said, you know, we've sold no tickets for this. <laughs> and I was like, oh, great. And then I, I sort of, and I, I sort of realized, oh my god, I have made no effort or concessions to make this commercial. There are no hits, and you know we've right. got Rolling Stone in there, right. you know. But right. and I began, and I said to him, oh, okay, right. So what? So he said, and I said, well, what, how do you feel about that? And he said, you know, he said, I think the previews are pretty good. And he said, I think when people come in and they see it, he said. There are things in this show no one has ever seen. Mm. And he said, when when a word gets out, it's going to sell out. And I would just looked at him and I thought, is he nuts? And, <laughs> and he was supposed to direct it, right? He was, but that was exactly what happened. It, you know, he, he was right. And I didn't realize that. So he was supposed to direct it, but he thought he thought I should direct it. Oh. So there again, he knew something that I didn't know. Well, when he saw the ticket sales, he said, <laughs> yeah. exactly. he said we're on to something, he said, we're on to something no. here. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so that was yeah. So it was um, yeah. He 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 thought I should direct it. Yeah. Tell us about directing your own material. Mm. Do you when you come in? Well, I you have also directed plays of yours that are pre-existing. I mean, when you come in and direct a show of yours, mm-hmm. do you feel like you're directing your show or that you're taking on a problem that's exterior to yourself? What's the thought process? Very like? much. I think I'm very separate to the. The writing process is a little bit like something that happens if you're lucky and it happens and then it's gone and it's over. And the person that was able to do that is gone and the the, the inspiration and the energy and the window for doing that is, is finished. So in a funny way, you're of very little use to, um, to, to the process as a writer. But as a director, you are able to um, try and fix it. You know, and what happens was the great thing is, is that suddenly the characters are standing in front of you in three dimensions. 
and you can talk to them <laughs> and sort of suggest things to them and ask them things. And, you know, um, fi- you know, you can figure it out and change it very quickly. And often if I'm directing, I just shout things at the actors just to do different things. And uh, or, as I've, or the characters, as it were, you're talking to the characters and you say, why don't you say this? And, you know, so that's it keeps evolving and changing. So I'm very uh, I think whenever I've been in the room with a director who's doing one of my things, they are they find that completely anarchic because I am like, there is no reason why you need to stick to these these lines. You know, if the actor's doing something that's funnier, better or that mistake or that they skipped that and we didn't need it. Mm. Leave it out. You know, know, when I'm at a loss is when. They ask me, so what does this speech mean? And I say, I don't know. What do you think it means? Right. Which throws actors. They, they, if they ask you that question, they want to know what you think it means. And the truth is, I don't always remember. And the thing is as well, most of them will only be able to do it one way anyway. So you got to just do, you know, lean into the way they're doing it. Because there's, there's a way that they're going to do it, which is the best way for them. Right. Because of who they are. Some people are funny. Some people are serious. Some people are moving. Some people, you got to help them. But I would go wherever they're going. I'm like, let's use that energy. You know, I'm not convinced. You know, you said that you have no, you know, the musical theater. It's not your really Mm -hmm. where you come from. But you must have some innate sense of the the dramaturgical sort of connection that songs have in in musical theater, because I was thinking, as Terry said, there's no 11 o'clock number in. um, Mm -hmm. But I think that Duquesne Whistle, Mm -hmm. a song I won't describe its um, Mm -hmm. the circumstances because I think Mm -hmm. it should come as a surprise. Mm -hmm. But that comes at a point in the show when you're ready to be kind of knocked bowled over again. Mm -hmm. And it happens. It's very late in the show or fairly Mm -hmm. late in the Mm -hmm. show. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Rolling Stone comes at at another sort Mm -hmm. of, Mm -hmm. you know, climactic mm-hmm. moment of the mm-hmm. of the piece and has an emotionality that I think replicates not in in a conventional way but the, what happens in terms of the rise and fall of mood in an emotion in a mu- in most musical theater so you must have had some under, it must have just sort of naturally come to you that you needed this kind, these kind of moments to rise mm-hmm. and fall in the show. It wasn't just, mm-hmm. I'm going to put these Dylan songs in and see where we, oh, no. where we go. Oh, no, you got it. You know, you are following uh, an instinctive sense of balance and speed and pace and kind of like something needs to happen here now. Something different, something mm-hmm. unexpected, you know, needs to happen. There's no question. But you're trying to do that with plays anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, and plays... Sure, are, and your yeah. plays aren't kind of musical. Well, well I, like they have to be a bit like songs, you know, so you got the... You know, the intro, you've got your first verse where you're starting to figure out who, what the song is about. Then, you know, you've got a chorus where something kind of happens and people get really interested and they like it. And, you know, you. so it is, I think, plays should be sort of like songs. But, but, but you know? you're also really famous for, for, for plays that are built around sometimes very strong monologues. Do you feel like the songs play the same role? Yeah. As those monologues that yeah, you have yeah. in your play, basically, yeah. where character in, in, in this one, actually, also, it's tricky because in this one, you both have the song as monologue, but you also have a lot of them are done by the ensemble mm-hmm. uh, together. So what, how do you differentiate the two? Because there's very uh, great moments in the show where a character starts as a solo, let's say, call that mm-hmm. the monologue, but then the ensemble comes in. Mm-hmm. And how, how did you decide the, the border between the two? I thought that was fascinating in the show. Well, you see, once music starts, you can do anything. Mm. The boundaries of time and space all melt away. And you can actually do anything. Once music starts, you can just do anything. And the audience will just go anywhere. And in fact, the bolder you are, that's the way they like it, in fact. Mm. So, and for me too, I love music. 
I'm greedy for music. I'm greedy for harmonies. I'm greedy for the power of the ensemble wanging through the front, you know, the fort wall and uh, and giving it to us. That's what the audience like. So I like it too. So mm. I'm looking for ways to always capitalize on that energy. Um, and I always end up sort of putting more songs in it. I remember music. I'm always looking for it. So for me, yeah, but you're right. I think in terms of an inner revelation of some kind, uh, songs are a terrific way to do that. And the great thing about Bob Dylan songs is that it's just not cheesy, mm-hmm. 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 you know? So you play right. guitar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're a kind of musician. We, yeah, I mean... You've I, got to tell the story about the, the Biddle story that you, you've... Uh, oh, well, yeah, had, just I started playing guitar when I was about 10. I saw the Beatles movies were on TV one Christmas on like the BBC or somewhere. And that was, you know, I just decided I had to get a guitar then, yeah. But, the, that, but yeah. that's what led you into the, into Dylan. And then uh, I had, yeah, I got a little like songbook that, that had these little chords and, you know, uh, songs <laughs> in it. And Mr. Tambourine Man was there. And like as a 10 year old kid, I was like, what are these lyrics? It's just so bonkers. It's the first Dylan song that I remember as having been by this guy named Bob Dylan. Right, exactly. But he has that incredible power and charisma. He's just a yeah. guy from from Minnesota with a guitar. Yeah. And look at the earthquake that he sent into the world. I mean, how, it's incredible. How much contact did you have with him? None. <laughs> has he seen none. the show? Yes, he has. He saw it at the public theater. Did he like it? He loved it. <laughs> yeah. What do you mean, none? No, no. You've uh, met him, right? Never, uh, never, never, never. What? No, Amazing. No, no, no. Come on. No, it just... Never? Never. Phone no. call? No. Just, we just chat, uh, you know, we just, uh, no, just talk to his manager. But he, it's always just, Bob just wants you to do what you want. Just do what you want. Bob just wants you to do what you want. It's so interesting. It's so, yeah. But I mean, that's very Bob Dylan, too. It's very like... That's yeah, nerve-wracking no in a way. I don't know. Yeah, I'd, be, I'd be a fanboy. I'd try to find some way to meet Bob Dylan if I'd written this show. Well, yeah. but um, so you don't want to upset the... The the, chem, the chemical. Well, his manager going. did say to me. He said, "Look, if Bob comes in the room, he says everyone's going to be like, well, what does Bob think?'" And right. he said, I may, yeah. and he said, and maybe Bob's ideas won't be, you know, the right <laughs> thing, you know. So just keep. He's he knows that. He's just like you. Just do what you do. And did Did you do it for Bob? Uh I just felt it was like meeting another. It was like meeting a. It was like meeting a ghost, you know, who just has a lot of beautiful songs and just was late. It was. It's weird. I mean, I feel like I have met him. I mean, I think in mm. a way I've almost been married to him in a funny mm. way. It, you know, some idea. Sure. It's a weird thing. It's but it's very free. He's very. He's very non. You know. I mean, he he came to see the show. He was playing his concerts at the Beacon Theater here. He was doing it. I think he was doing right. like a little residency right, 10 right. nights or something and he had a free night and the next and he came and saw our show and the next night he invited some of our cast to go and spend time with him mm. and he sat with them for an hour mm. and he just talked about the show he did and he just loved it that's great mm. so i tell you we can't expect him to be at opening night on broadway no no, I, I don't, don't think so. No. Well, he's—I think he's—he lives out in California, I think, and I think actually he's, he's probably he's, on the road in Tierra del Fuego. He's always working. Way. I mean, he's a working guy, you know. Who were the people who came up with the? You know, I, one of the things I loved about the show is the surprise and just how how the songs are set. I mean, one of the wonderful things about it is that you know, you're first of all you're hearing a lot of these songs for the first time, not in Bob Dylan's voice, and mm-hmm. for me that was a pleasure. Right. Um, I, I, I admire his songwriting skills, but I also really enjoyed hearing you know full out musical theater actors delivering these numbers. How, in terms of the conception and how you figured out 
where to set these songs? The sort of you know when it becomes like an oct- a, a septet of wi- septet of women, yeah. or you know a sing like a or you know there's a you know uh, uh, there are these uh, ensemble numbers that just really sort of uh, um, mm-hmm. sort of fill the stage. Was that you alone conceiving these, or who else did you? Bounce these ideas yeah. off. Were you working with a music director on these decisions? Well, we had Simon Hale, who's a music arranger, so we would work together, um, putting together stuff. But sometimes it'd be very quick, you know. Like I'd be, I would be watching YouTube during rehearsals and looking. I saw Bob Dylan playing in the '80s some of his music, and I would say there was two songs. Um, License to Kill and Joker Man, mm-hmm. and I came in the next day and I just said, All right, we're going to do these show these songs <laughs> in the show, and uh, just would start. We just would learn them and do them. What? But then, in terms of visually, as you say, I mean, I love that part of of directing. I love doing the you know working on the lighting mm. and the and the movement and the choreography. We had a great movement director, Lucy Hind, and we. I mean, for me, I like going up to the Met and places like that. I'll stand looking at paintings, Mm. you know, Vermeer's and beautiful old European paintings and stuff like that. Mm. And really, for me, I'm trying to create those kind of contemplative images Mm. over and over. And if we Mm. can, but you've got to keep changing it subtly all the time. So my show's never... Anything I direct never is very still. It it move, if you what if you watched it if you taped it and then sped it up. It's just like watching you know like food in a blender. Mm. It never stops. There's also something about damage in this piece that kept coming to, to me that I always find a very sort of uh, affecting uh, thing on a stage when you're seeing people who are so deeply. Uh, damaged and yet they can and then they they burst into these gorgeous melodies it's a show full of hurt um yeah i mean but sure, like elizabeth sure. when she you yeah, know suddenly yeah. uh who is a mysterious character and mm-hmm. when i saw her played she was played so differently by mayor winningham i mm-hmm. felt than the actress Shirley played Moni, uh, moaning myrtle yes, in the right, yeah. harry potter movies yeah. but yet both were really interesting sort yeah, of you yeah. know um mm-hmm. manifestations of that character mm. and then you know the the son the damaged son as well uh when he suddenly has this ethereal voice. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I just wondered if you feel like a kind of, you know, giving those people music, uh, it feels very much connected to what happens in your plays, sort of with ghost stories and sort of the the, the, the lyricism that sort of, you know, those stories uh, yeah. communicate, even from souls who have themselves really, you know, difficult, twisted lives. Well, I think, yes. I mean, I suppose it's like, being a human being is a very, uh, it's a very fragile place to be, mm-hmm. right? I mean, mm-hmm. and being conscious is uh, is a very strange predicament, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's we all have worries, and That's we all want, we all wonder about everything, and we all think about everything, and wonder about mortality, and can we help? Can we look after the people who need us? And that's, you know, it's, it's a lot of stuff. And I mean, I think when you put people on stage who are just, that's their journey and that's, that's ordinary life. Um, the search for transcendence is probably our biggest search always, isn't mm. it? You know, we're always looking forward to something that's going to deliver us and free us into a sort of sense of peacefulness. Mm. And we search for those little islands of peacefulness. and Like music. Like music and right. And it's, you know, and even, I mean, I think that's the definition of the word grace. Mm. When you're sort of just chugging along and you're not too kind of, bound, you know, 
bugged by anything, you're actually, you don't even realize it. Mm. But how lucky are you in that for those two hours that you kind of chugged along and kind of you weren't thinking about a whole lot, really? That's why God made rehearsal rooms. Right, okay. So it's just the time flew by and that's, that's grace. But it's mm. if you are going down the stairs and you stumble and you break your leg, you suddenly for like a few months, your whole life is thrown into a, you know, a pretty existential place. Mm. And you realize how lucky are we just to not be beset by pain. Mm. Um, so the characters I usually have, that's that's where they are. Mm. And, you know, so just expressing that. And music actually does allow you to express that. Mm. Mm. I should know the answer to this, and I don't. Have you ever directed plays by other writers? Just twice. Once, one was a play called Eden by a writer called Eugene O'Brien, which I did in Dublin. It was, it was monologues, and it was very nice to do. And then on film, I did one of the Beckett on film. Uh, I did Endgame with Michael Gambon and David Toulas in the in wow. the main roles. Yeah, yeah. How do you approach your your film work as opposed to um, stage work? Is that I think really filmmaking um, is something that really is so. When I became a dad about nine years ago and I realized that filmmaking is so all absorbing that it was something that you can't do and be a dad. That was mm. what I realized, like going to the moon, right? Mm. So it's so all consuming. I think it's like telling stories in images is, uh, it's, that's a hungry search. Mm. That is a crazy hungry search. You're searching for moments because even if you're writing a play, you sort of get a bit of a structure on it. You're making a film. You're trying to really, you're really trying to capture magic. And that is a crazy journey. I can't imagine doing film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 full on, but it's a whole other thing. It's a beautiful thing to do, and I might get back to it someday. But for the moment, uh, doing this is enough. But you're not sitting around thinking, oh, I'd like to direct this play by this writer. Or are you? It would be a lovely thing to do, but it's such a big thing to do. It's such a huge thing to do, you know, and usually sort of I have some some weird idea that I'm sort of, is going to distract me from that anyway. Unless someone came to me and said, will you direct Long Day's Journey into Night on these dates? Is everybody listening? Well, you know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> did we get that out there? <laughs> I'm, no, Long I'm, Day's no. Journey into Night. Or whatever it is. Connor McPherson. No, it's like, uh, you you know, I'm, I'm not looking for trouble. That's what it's like. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you're going to get it if you direct yeah, that. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, we have we we need to move along, but there's something I just have to ask you. I was actually looking up the Belasco Theater on Wikipedia and oh, yeah. discovered yes, yes, yes. that it is rumored to be haunted by the ghost of David Belasco himself. And you, being the kind of playwright you are, <laughs> I really must ask: Have you caught any sight of him? He came and gave us notes the other day, <laughs> and, I was, and he was harsh. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, some of the people that work there have told me they've seen strange things there, um, you know, when they're alone at night and stuff like that. So there seems to be something there. But uh, w w yeah, what we're doing is weird enough. We don't need any more weirdness. <laughs> well, we know you're busy these days. We won't keep you longer. But thanks again uh, thank very, you. very much for joining us today on 3 on the Air. It was a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, thank, you, well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that was terrific. That was really, really interesting though, from my point of view. So now we're going to move on to our uh, own recent adventures in the theater. Elizabeth, what have you seen of late that's wowed you or stunned you well, or I, made you rich? I've... <laughs> <laughs> you rich I've been... at anything lately, Elizabeth? <laughs> uh, I, I really enjoyed Too Macho. Uh, which is um, a play that popped up a few years ago uh, as part of Club Thumb 
summer work series. And that's a series that has also given up, given us um, what the Constitution means to me, which premiered there, and uh, Men on Boat. Um, and so now the play is back. It's a play with music by, by Ethan Lipton. Uh, and it's a supernatural Western comedy. Wait a minute. You called it, I, I heard too macho. It's it's one word, oh, too macho. Too macho. Too so mach- it's not too, well, he's not too macho. Well, that's also kind of oh, part is? of the joke. Oh, okay, but yeah, okay. it's too macho. Got it. Okay. But it's one word. It's one word. It's T-U-M-A-C-H-O. 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 Okay. Yeah, too macho. Uh, and it is uh, directed, directed by Lisa Woman, and it's wonderful. It's, yeah, it's, as I said, it's a supernatural Western comedy with songs, uh, with a great cast. There's uh, Philippa Sue is in it, mm. um, Andy Grodelution. Wow. He was just nominated for Tony for right. Tootsie. Right. And, well, these are uh, serious people. Yeah. John Ellison Conley. It's, oh. it's a great cast. It's yeah. incredibly funny, very, very dry and very surreal. Uh, and it's turning to be a nice little, like, like kind of under the radar hit. Apparently, it's like almost every performance is sold out or near sold out. Uh, it's at the Connelly Theater. Uh, it's just about an hour and 40 minutes. Um, I highly recommend it. And I think it's going to have like a very good life across the country mm. because it's a fairly small cast. Um, it's pretty easy to stage. Well, relatively, it's actually hard because it is the 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 the, the, the humor of the piece has to be played very dryly. Mm. And uh, what can I say? There's like a kind of soul-sucking demon in it, which is what I, I expect like, I from like a play. soul-sucking demons. Yeah, I know, right? Uh, so I demand one in every play I see. Some people think there are several of them in this room. <laughs> <laughs> we always have to get those licks in. You know, that's, I know, you know right? we, we, we take those lines away from um, other people. But yeah, that's... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I don't have anything after that. It's so good. Uh, but... <laughs> yeah. So well, Terry, yeah, I think speaking you... of soul sucking demons, right. yeah, exactly. I know, right? <laughs> it happens that I saw a stage version of Dracula. Um, oh my God! What a perfect segue. An excellent segue. A little background. Uh, Blood sucking. A classic stage company, which is one of New York's top off Broadway houses is doing, in rotating repertory, new stage versions of Dracula and Frankenstein. Uh, The Dracula is by Kate Hamill, whom uh, listeners to the show will recognize the name. She has, in the last few years, become one of this country's most uh, frequently produced playwrights. She's done stage versions of Little Women, Pride and Prejudice, Sense and Sensibility, and Vanity Fair. And this is in that vein. It is a stage version of Dracula for nine actors, and it has an unmistakable feminist slant. Uh, On the title page, it's called A Bit of a Feminist Revenge Mm. Fantasy. Uh, It has uh, gender-bending casting. Uh, Hamill herself plays Renfield, uh, Dracula's acolyte. That's my dream role, by the way. Well, (laughs) she's really, she's having fun with it. She's quite prolific. Uh, And and, uh, Jessica Francis Dukes is playing Oh, I love her. She was a woolly mammoth actress. Um, So... Dracula is described in the script as a toxic predator. Boy, is that timely. <laughs> and they've got this this guy, uh, Matthew Ament, is playing it, who is just as, as slick and smooth and charismatic and evil as you could possibly mm. want. But as is Hamill's want, it's funny. The first third of it is really played almost as a comedy. But then the... the, the, the 
the spook show aspect of it starts to ramp up as you go. And uh, by the end, it's, it's quite a horrific tale, but it is a tale whose premise is that all men under the right circumstances are capable of predatory behavior. Mm. So that fits very neatly into the Dracula idea. It's, it's enacted yeah. with tremendous oh. skill. Wow. You want to talk about plays that have hit written all over them. Uh, this is a, this is a regional theater dream. Uh, they already know about her out in the regions with the, the uh, uh, Jane Austen adaptations. But the idea of doing a feminist Dracula, you know, everybody's going to be doing this play, and they should, because mm. it's terrific. But this production, which is directed by uh, Sarna Lapine, uh, who is oh, is real? Yeah. She's the niece of James Lapine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's got she's got the good genes. Uh, uh, it's beautifully staged, especially the comic bits. Uh, John Doyle, who runs Classic Stage, did the set, one of his minimalist sets. Hmm. It's basically it's a giant bedsheet uh, used to tremendous in a hospital bed. Hmm. Uh, so this is a good show. It's hmm. a really good show. I was uh, and. Wherever you live, if you're listening to this, at some point in the next two or three seasons, you're going to be seeing Kate Hamill's Dracula. Trust me on this. She she, she needs to get away from those. Uh, Kate Hamill needs to get away from those Victorian oh, classics adaptations. Bodice. I think she should yeah, adapt yeah. a thriller. She should do like a Jack Reacher for the stage. No, I think That's what she should I said, do. I said in my review, <laughs> I think she needs to write a farce, a door mm. slammer. Mm. Because she, I think she's got the technical skill to do it. And classic farce was made for a feminist slant. Because it's always about these pompous, idiotic men who think they can get away with murder. And the mechanics that's of the play humiliate them. If that's, that's not made for somebody that's, like that's, Kate Hamill. That's a good point, yeah. It's like uh, Jesse Berger should do it at Red Bull. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. they did that wonderful government inspector with Michael Urie. I mean, I, that, I could see her doing it there. Yeah. Well, if, if, if Kate Hamill is inclined to try something original, I, I can see... She could end up being the female Fado, you know. I mean, we'll see what happens. But this Dracula is really nifty. And Peter, uh, you saw something in Washington. I read your review, and it strongly piqued my interest because it's a rare revival of a play by James Baldwin. Yeah, thanks, Terry. It's a good week for us in terms of our uh, our enthusiasms no for things we've seen. I saw a rare revival, indeed, of James Baldwin's The Amen Corner, which is a play from the early 50s, uh, very out of character in a sense for Baldwin because it's a very uh you know we think of him as this sort of like you know the the leading sort of black intellectual of mid-century and this is a very this is almost a, a a so a melodramatic story but on a very big scale done by of all places the Shakespeare Theater Company which is attempting under its new artistic director Simon Godwin I think to redefine what we think of as classics what you know what are what are modern classics that he can be he can bring to the community? Always important with a major regime change. Like totally, this. and he's really putting his stamp, I think, quickly now on the theater. And this one, directed by a terrific young black director named Whitney White, and I say oh, that yes, she's good. She's really really good, and I say that because she has you know clearly we don't want to like you know put people in categories just by ethnicity. But uh, she's real a race. We she's really has a a wonderful, wonderful connection to this material in her head. It's a gospel. It's filled with gospel, but it's and it's filled with great singers. And it tells the story of all things of a female street saw uh, a street corner pastor, if you will, in Harlem in the early fifties. And it's almost a kind of Shakespearean story of her. Uh, 
being taken down bit by bit from the arrogant perch in which she occupies. And we find out bit by bit that her, that what she is is not really, what she seems is not really who she is, um, both in terms of how she's treated her family and how she's treated the congregation. Boy, uh, is that a Baldwin theme. Indeed. Indeed. And it's done in this kind of epic uh, uh, presentation on the big stage at Sidney Harmon Hall in Washington. And I thought it was galvanizing. So um, did Baldwin really get the mechanics of writing a stage play? Well, you know, that's interesting. He only wrote a few. Uh, this one is a I've little... I've never seen any of them. This one, you know, I, this one has maybe too many monologues. It, it tends to be a little talky. Uh, he The themes get repeated somewhat, but there's so much power and such interest in portraying this world. You know, it's a world... It's, it's, it's the community not talking about racial issues. It's talking about, you know, human issues. Sometimes those things are the same thing. But, you know, we've had a lot of people talking about identity. Maybe the, right, the way to say that is it, it, racial identity has become a huge topic on the contemporary stage. This is a portrait, almost a slice of, of extraordinary life in, um, in, a, in a community at a certain in, in a certain period. And I think that for those reasons, it has a certain uh, 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 un, uh, out of um, the ordinary power uh, that 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 the story, you know, they it was on Broadway in the '60s and it didn't do well. It never really found its footing, but I think that it it's the kind of thing that you know a New York audience too should be well, seeing. Talk about bad timing for a play of that kind on Broadway in that decade. That, in, indeed, yeah, 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 exactly, exactly, exactly right. It was the, the voices were all revolutionary at that point. I'm very right? curious. Yeah, so. Uh, we could do this for uh, hours, as you all know, uh, but it's time for Especially us to. Especially when we have a guest like Connor McPherson. Indeed, uh, but it's time for us to, uh, and you know, to let poor Erica Huang have a life. Uh, she sits here patiently listening to us natter on, and so we will wrap up this episode. <laughs> I know. All right. Sorry. So as um, as soul sucking demon number one, I'm Peter Marks. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> All right, kids, let's behave now. Oh my God! Okay, so I'm, I'm soul sucking uh, host number two. I'm Elizabeth Vincentelli, and I, who do not suck souls at all, am Terry Teachout. Well, so you say. So I say. <laughs> You've been listening to Three on the Isle, a podcast from New York about theater in America, hosted by American Theater Magazine, and our producer, as aforementioned, is the stupefyingly stupendous Erica Wong. She really is an amazingly uh, good producer. <laughs> and patient. Uh, yes. So you can follow us on Twitter at, at 3 on the Isle, spelled out, and write to us at 3 on the Isle at gmail.com. Please no. write. We really write. We use those yeah. letters. You've heard it in previous broadcasts. We're yes, yes, yes. Mailbag, please. Fill yeah. it. Fill it. Yeah, fill our mailbag. We answer questions. Uh, please let us know what other topics you want us to, uh, to explore and maybe even who you want to hear in future episodes. Uh, and don't forget to leave a review or a rating, hopefully uh, one that does not uh, call us soul-sucking demons, <laughs> on iTunes or Google Play. I'm, I'm owning it, by the way. I know, I'm, I know. I'm, I feel like I sh it becomes our thing. Yeah, exactly. I think we should have cards made. It's probably our three on the aisle thing should say soul-sucking demons or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for listening, and we'll be with you again soon on the aisle. 